Hello, everyone. You're listening to ACC Chicago's podcast, It's All Hearsay, a podcast where lawyers give current news, practical tips, and real stories on legal issues relevant to in-house attorneys. My name is Chantal Kazai, and I'm in-house as Director and Senior Counsel of Litigation with Discover, and I'm your host. This episode is brought to you by ACC Chicago and Epstein, Becker & Green, one of our gold sponsors. A quick disclaimer, this podcast is not intended to and does not constitute legal advice. It is for informational purposes only. Listeners are encouraged to contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter discussed in this episode. And visit us at www.acc.com forward slash Chicago to learn more about, like, comment, or subscribe to ACC Chicago and It's All Hearsay. So let's get started. In this episode, we're proud to present AI Takes the Stand, an episode of Speaking of Litigation, a monthly podcast series from Epstein, Becker, and Green that provides an inside look at the various stages of litigation and the key strategic issues businesses face along the way. In a moment, you'll hear attorneys Teddy McCormick, Jim Flynn, and Ali Nineber discuss the influence that AI has on litigation, employment practices, music, and more. Today on Speaking of Litigation, we will be discussing whether using AI technology could get you sued. Hello everyone, I'm your host, Teddy McCormick. I'm an attorney in Epstein and Becker and Green's Princeton, New Jersey office. I'm part of our litigation practice. The inspiration for today's episode comes straight out of the news. Uh, Chat GPT was released at the end of 2022 and it seems like AI is pretty much everywhere these days. Uh, You can't turn around without seeing another article or podcast about people cloning themselves and fooling their bank or their family or hearing a song like Heart of My Sleeve, which was created use, using AI version versions of Drake and The Weeknd's voices before it was taken down by the record, co- record company. Um, for us as litigators, this naturally got us thinking about all of the potential risks that may arise from using AI and what impact AI is likely going to have on litigation in the future. So today, what we want to do is talk about how how AI is literally reshaping the landscape uh, when it comes to the future of litigation. But first, a request for you. If you like the information we're sharing today, please subscribe to the show. Speaking of Litigation is available on speakingoflitigation.com, YouTube, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Joining our discussion today is Jim Flynn, Managing Director and Member of Epstein, Becker & Green. He focuses much of his practice on intellectual property law including copyright and trademarks. And recently, Jim has spent a lot of time thinking about the implications of using generative AI tools to create music, writings, or artwork. Also joining us today is Alexandra Ali Nineborg. Um, Ali is an associate with Epstein, Becker & Green. Ali is a member of Epstein, Becker & Green's AI task force and regular, regularly counsels clients regarding the litigation risks associated with the use of AI tools in recruitment, hiring, training, and assessment of employees. Um, So before we dive into our specific areas of discussion, I thought maybe we could spend a few minutes talking about how AI is reshaping uh, litigation and our jobs right now. Um, Just one anecdote I wanted to share, I've been preparing 
for a jury trial and we just obtained a list of potential jurors over, over 500 people. We hired a vendor that utilizes AI to put, put together profiles on each of the potential jurors, including a, a psychological assessment of each juror based on their social media profiles and other publicly available uh, information. Um, to me, it was really quite fascinating because the last time I did this was about 15 years ago and we used a company that relied on people to do this kind of assessment. And it was both much more time consuming and more expensive. Um, we were able to get these profiles complete with pictures, uh, psychological assessments, lists of interests, work history, educational background for over 500 people. And it took us, I think it took them less than 48 hours. So that kind of blew my mind. Uh, it also made me feel very, very old, to be honest. Um, Jim, have, have you had any recent experiences like that where AI has just completely transformed some function of your job? So I, I can't really say that I've had recent experience that have changed it or been as dramatic as what you just described. But I will say that I think it's important at the outset here to say AI is not new. Certainly chat GPT and generative AI is something that's now coming in that seems very new and we have to talk about the implications of it. But Litigation has been transformed previously by AI, right? Predictive coding for discovery documents and going through emails is just a form of AI. It's simpler than generative AI, and certainly that transformed all of our lives. Um, that's pushed into legal research, any kind of free language text search on you know, different databases is all a form of AI. So one of the things I try to emphasize in my writings or in discussions with colleagues is we shouldn't be too afraid of it. We should not feel too old um, <laughs> because we've lived with it for a long time, Teddy. So when you say, oh, I feel old, um, don't. We're all learning the new stuff um, and we've all had part of the stuff there before. So I think there's a lot of things going on in how we litigate using AI. And then obviously the substantive issues you talked about particularly in copyright and elsewhere, um, where it's being litigated in various fields. So you're right, and we are we are good at um, adapting, and we will continue to adapt to these new technologies. Um, Ali, you, you are much younger than both Jim and I, but have you had any um, areas of your job that, that have recently been transformed by using AI? So I feel like I'm kind of going on the same train of you guys with document review. I think that's the latest thing that I've seen at least machine learning impacting it. Um, recently, we had a project where humans went in, we trained uh, the system basically to evaluate what would be most relevant. Um, so we went in, did a small set, coding it, non-relevant, relevant, and then allowed the system to do the remainder of the documents and pull what's more relevant so that we could quickly more produce it to the other side. So that's a really interesting take for us to start seeing, at least with document review, I haven't seen it with motion or anything like that, and I don't anticipate using ChatGPT within the next month or so to do those types of things, but I can see that transforming it in the future. So let's switch gears. Allie, can you tell us uh, a little bit about some of the litigation risks that arise from employers using AI tools in their recruitment, their hiring, their training, and evaluation of employees? Yeah, so I think the latest thing that we are really seeing is using screening tools specifically AI screening tools when the hiring processes is going on. 
And that is bringing up some of the basic issues that we always see with employment law, which is, you know, discrimination, um, age discrimination, disability discrimination, race, gender, all of these different things. And kind of the latest case that has brought this more to the forefront is Mobley versus Workday. Mobley is trying to do a class action lawsuit. So he's trying to be a representative. Um, he is an African-American. He's over the age of 40 and he has disabilities. And within the last couple of years, he's put in his resume to about 80 to 100 jobs. And he believes that Workday is being used by these companies he's applied to um, and has been rejected from. And his allegations as of now are that Workday's tool is biased in which it discriminates against those specific individuals. So this case is in the very beginning stage. It was only filed in February of this year. And the latest action on it is they've asked for an extension of time to file an answer to it, Workday has. So this is going to be a continuing ongoing lawsuit that we're going to watch evaluate and kind of determine as, as the laws go forward. Um, so outside of that, the other area that we're really seeing that has kind of made big waves, and a lot of people have probably heard about it, is the New York City law, which is, um, I always call it as the AEDT, which saying that a million times can get you a little bit tongue-tied, but it's the New York City Automated Employment Decision Tool Law. And the basic focus on that law is requiring any company that's in New York City or any individual who lives in New York City, um, if they have a screening tool, an AI screening tool used against them, that they get notified. And kind of the fun, interesting thing that I think is going to come out of that litigation overall is going to be if the vendor or the AI product is actually considered AI. Um, because they have a very specific definition they go to, which kind of goes into the database and machine learning and different things like that. But you're going to have, you're going to see some companies who are really focused on not being considered an automated employment decision tool. Um, and you're going to have other companies who are going to go into there. We can talk about it more in depth if you would like, or hear what Jim's kind of perspective on it is. Sure. So. Regarding the things that Ali's talking about, we certainly see those. I think what they highlight from a litigation standpoint is that you're going to need to be technically sophisticated or have access to people that are. So it becomes an important issue. And I know we'll talk later specifically about some of the things that come into play with regard to your ethical duties as a lawyer. But a few years ago, before the AI craze, um, the ABA actually added comments to their model rules that said some degree of familiarity and understanding of how technology is going to be used have to be built in to the very definition of competence we have as, as lawyers. So when you talk about something like the cases that Ali's mentioning, it's really going to meld, okay, am I technically sophisticated enough to make the argument that I don't qualify as one of these tools. And then, of course, because you probably have to make both arguments simultaneously, to then say, but even if I do, I don't violate this employment law or that employment law. So the ability to have a foot in both camps or to have a team of lawyers who can work across practices 
to really do that is one of the things that's going to really change for litigators because these are becoming much more prevalent. And it's true, too, um, that I think in addition to um, counseling clients with respect to um, whether to implement you know, an AI tool for screening or something like that. I think that um, outside counsel uh, in, in conjunction with consultants are going to be doing a lot of um, auditing of tools that people may already be using. And I think, um, I think in, in Jim, I think we at EBG are already doing that uh, with, with EBG advisors. Is that, is that true? So we do it both, um, you know, through our EBG advisors consultancy, but we also do it directly with our attorneys. Mm -hmm depending on the nature of the engagement, how much you want privilege, we can use either, either side of that. But what's also important to understand in this context is how careful you need to be about language. Because when you're talking the employment side, um, bias can be used interchangeably with discrimination under the discrimination laws. But bias as a scientific concept in how algorithms work they have nothing to do with some protected category. There could be a bias in the AI algorithm or system that produces um, skewed results that don't necessarily equate to discrimination because it may skew on something other than the protected category. And so even just having a conversation, you can have an IT lawyer or an IT consultant talking to an employment lawyer or an HR person and they're both talking about bias, but they're talking about totally different things. Right. So just the discipline to actually get a common lexicon becomes very important as you start to litigate these cases. And not only at the end, when you're talking to a jury, potentially, very important, obviously, to have your terms straight, but all the way at the beginning, because you can waste a lot of time having a conversation that nobody understands you're not talking about the same thing, right? It goes all the way back to the, you know, the ancient, you know, law school case, you know, the ship peerless, right? We're each talking about two different ships. That's what happens here when you're talking about bias in the AI context. You got to be very careful with your terminology. That's a great point. Aside from the litigation risks associated with using AI in the employment context, one of the things that I think we've been seeing a lot in the news recently is... Um, we're now seeing AI tools used to create music and writings and artwork, which which creates a whole host of um, intellectual property issues. And, and Jim, I know you've written a number of articles about this subject and given it a lot of thought. Do you do you think generative AI may eventually be um, eligible for copyright protection? I guess the simple answer is yes, but being a lawyer, I like to quibble. So <laughs> so my answer is. AI generative work, generated works, I think will eventually be entitled to protection, but it might not be called copyright. Um, right now, the copyright statute, at least in the United States, requires a human element. The definition of author or how it's referenced in the statute means a human being. And even before AI, I've been involved in cases about whether you can copyright something that you say was dictated by a spirit or a god. Um, and I've actually had that real, as a real case. Um, and so it becomes a very interesting, interesting process. Um, I do think, however, that there will come a time where AI-generated works will be protected. It could either happen because the copyright statute 
changes and and gives a definition of author that's more expansive than the current understanding. Because right now it just refers to author. Um, but the Copyright Office has developed regulations that say that requires a human being. Um, I don't envision the Copyright Office changing those without a statutory change. But there could be other forms of protection that could be established. So, for instance, on an analogy to the patent field, in patent law, to get a, a patent, you're supposed to invent something. You're not supposed to just find something. So if there's a natural process, normally under patent concepts, you wouldn't be able to patent it. But what people found, particularly in you know the concept of genetically modified plants or other organisms, or in some things in, in the pharmaceutical or health field, it might be a natural process in the body to produce insulin, let's say, uh, <laughs> or to produce, you know, some other, you know, substance. And when someone does all the research to figure out how to do that or replicate it or isolate it, there was a time where you couldn't patent that, despite the fact of all the investment that was needed. And I think what will eventually happen is that on the intellectual property side, when we get past what I'll call the advocates, which I'll explain to a minute, and get simply to the business people, there'll be a market imperative to require that somebody be able to protect this stuff. I mean, right now, the cases we hear about are these cases, uh, for instance, by, uh, there's a guy named Stephen Thaler, um, and, and he is a person who creates AI, AI processes and, and you know, invention software um he keeps trying to get under the current law the ai um machinery or software or process recognized as the author and he's battling up against the current law and at least in the united states is lost he's also lost in some other you know places overseas um and i know there's a he tried to get a picture that was generated by ai you know, which was called the opening to paradise. And he's trying to get that um, copyrighted. He's also tried to patent certain inventions that have the AI listed as the inventor. I think we'll get past that when it's not about creating that buzz. And it's just about, hey, I want to be able to sell posters of this picture. And I just want to make money. There's going to be a market imperative where somebody's going to lobby Congress and figure out how to give that a protection. Are they going to call it copyright? Maybe. Maybe they're going to call it something else. Um, but there will be a protection. I think the other issues we're going to see that you mentioned and we're starting to see with this creation stuff is it's one thing if you create it just from what you say um, or what you feed into the AI process. But the way AI works is it reaches out and, and takes elements and sort of synthesizes things from thousands and thousands of other images. So we already see lots of litigation about, hey, are you copying my images and using them in your process without paying me a license fee? So in some sense, we're going to get the portrait or picture version of what we used to see with, you know, years ago with Napster and before they figured out all the music stuff. We're also going to see litigation um, 
and this will come into some other forms of litigation as well. But we're going to see the right of publicity because if I start copying things and it appears that this is now a duet being sung by two people who never appeared together before, um, am I robbing them of their image? Even if I use a totally new work and a new song, so it's not copying their song, it's just portraying their voice or their image, that's protected under laws of various states, either a common law or as it is in New York under, you know, Section 50 and 51 of the New York State um, Civil Rights Law. So there's a lot of litigation that, that's going to come out on the IP side, um, and that already is. There's also people just trying to make money off of it. Yeah. Getty Images, as an example, may be suing to stop people from copying, but you know, some other database of photographs is signing contracts to license all their stuff so people can use their images to pull it into, um, you know, their AI creation. So that's going to be just an interesting thing to to watch. And the Copyright Office has said they're going to continue to to study it. So what you say, I think, is, is so interesting and so true about, I think, so speaking for a moment about... Um, artists and using, you know, AI technology to, to, uh, create songs and things like that. Uh, there was an article, I think that we were looking at either that came out yesterday or today where ice cube was very anti, um, very anti AI. And, and I think he even called it demonic. And then I think in the same article, it talks about Grimes and how Grimes was embracing it and, and trying to license it and, and do things like that. Um, Let's talk a little bit about whether um, AI is is you know using these this types these types of technologies to create songs. First of all, have either of you listened to the Heart of My Sleeve song? I will confess that I have not. Uh, Ali or Jim, have either of you had a chance to l listen to it? Yeah, I've listened to that and some other um, uh, songs that have been been generated through AI, and it's it's interesting. I mean, if it's like, you know, other deep fakes um, that you see. I mean, if you've seen some of the things that they've done with Tom Cruise as an example, where it's not Tom Cruise speaking, but they manipulate it. You think it's Tom Cruise making those statements. Yeah, it's, it, some of it is, um, you know, very hard to differentiate from the real thing. And that's why I think that ultimately cases on this right of publicity are going to you know, really mushroom if people try to do that without a license. Ali, did you get a chance to, to listen to the Heart of My Sleeve song? I did. I actually played it for a couple of friends to see if they would catch on and neither of them did. And they both okay. admitted that if they were listening to it in the car, they'd be like, oh, that's a Drake song. And then just not think anything of it. So it was really interesting to see that perspective of most people wouldn't recognize it nor think twice of it, especially when it's on a streaming service. I think that's 100% true. And I don't, I was in, in preparing for today's podcast, I was listening to, um, I think it was another podcast where, where the, uh, the host did sort of a, a, a fake Kanye West um, rap. And it was interesting because when I was listening to it, knowing that it was fake, it sounded slightly fake to me, but I think there was a bias there because I was watching it at the same time. There's going to be some people, you know, like some of those you mentioned, who are going to be very anti it and consider it demonic. And then there's going to be others who are going to want to exploit it for artistic and for monetary reasons. 
And so it's interesting, particularly in the wake of the recent Supreme Court decision regarding Andy Warhol, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people look at Andy Warhol as a genius and someone who took elements of others' creations or others' images and took them to a new place, right? Others say, no, he copied and he owes all this stuff. So we do have analogs in the past for this, right? So under the New York human rights, uh, New York civil rights law that I mentioned previously, um, there have been cases where somebody in a radio commercial used a, um, a voice double, somebody who could sing like Bette Midler or whatever, and, and tried to, they didn't say it was Bette Midler, but they used an iconic song or something like that, and, and the sang the song and, and associated with their product. And you know, people could come in and sue. So you're going to see some evolution of using laws like that to go after, um, you know, what gets created in AI. But I would have to think there'd be a booming market for AI. I mean, you know, and and, and created things. I mean, who wouldn't want to hear? We always get looks backward, right? So we could get a current artist singing oldies. AI could let you take an old artist and have them sing the new stuff. There's got to be a market for that. Um, And there's going to be lots of litigation about it. But, and that's why I said earlier, when we get past some of the advocates who are trying to make a point about AI and just get to the place where you're trying to make money from AI, that's when the law will sort out better, I think. I think you're 100% correct. And if you you make a great point about uh, analogs, I think, we do have something of an analog with respect to um, like the sampling, uh, you know, industry. And and I think, and I, I could be incorrect about this, when this first started, you know, sampling was very big with, with rap songs going back 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, that generated a lot of litigation. And then once that sort of sorted itself out, it generated a model where people pay. If you're going to sample an old Temptation song and you're, you're, new rap song you're gonna you're gonna pay a licensing fee i mean there's still disputes that arise with respect to whether someone was actually using a a, a riff or a hook or something like that but um i think that uh once it gets sorted out i think the market will sort it out there will be a market for that and i think it would be amazing to hear someone like uh you know frank sinatra do a a modern song or something like that no i agree 100 percent so one one thing I'd be curious to get your take on, Jim, is how um, fair use applies to model training in in generative AI. And I don't know if that's something that you've given any thought to or had an opportunity to uh, to to evaluate. Yes, I have thought about it and 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 written about it, and it's implicit in a lot of what I've already said. I tend to think that some of the image holders. Um, particularly the aggregators of images are being a little unrealistic in the position that they're taking um, in time, in terms of just trying to shut it down. Um, I think that AI will overtake that as a market reality. Um, That being said, you know, they shouldn't be left with nothing, but I think, you know, a negotiated resolution of an appropriate, licensing fee for the database is is more likely the better economic and legal outcome um, than anything else. You know, it's one thing to talk about those concepts simply in the artistic area, 
but you know the model sampling actually then can take us to a whole other area of privacy rights and of uh, healthcare and healthcare imperatives because while somebody could go through a you know a gazillion images to try to create you know the opening to Eden or the opening to paradise as a painting um, it's also the way that these models learn how to um, you know more efficiently do mammography and figure out um, you know what is um, evidence of breast cancer um, or what is you know evidence of other gastrointestinal issues because they're doing a lot of this with um, things revolving around the liver and, and other testing and so and that's all done by somebody feeding them a lot of data and a lot of images from CT scans or MRIs or you know all kinds of other other things and so we're going to have to get a handle not only lawyers but kind of as a society of how do we do this and and make sure that there's the right access to the data that allows that um and you know it's not very different frankly than some of the challenges we have in the medical record the electronic medical records area where we're just trying to make sure that people and not only people but systems can talk to each other in a way that's ultimately most beneficial for most of us. So 100%. So a lot of really interesting stuff on the horizon in the IP area. Um, so another another topic that uh, we I think we should cover is um, sort of the the ethical considerations for um, for lawyers and for consultants who are using AI. Um, you know, for an instance, when a, when if an associate at a law firm uses ChatGPT to write a legal brief or memo, um, yeah, this could this could give rise to a number of uh, you know potential pitfalls. Um, Ali, do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the the potential uh, ethical and, and other considerations that could arise from from using a tool like that? Yeah, so I think the first biggest thing is you're sharing client information in there. And as attorneys, we obviously have the duty of confidentiality. That's, I think, one of the main issues. The second issue that I really see and a big part of my job that I do as an associate is double checking citations. Um, when opposing counsel comes in with stuff, I always double check to make sure that what they've quoted is actually correct. And the information put in there is not helpful to my side in any way, because if it is, I'm going to quote it. Um, and I'm going to make sure to point that out to the court. So I don't want to be using ChatGPT or BARD or any of these other systems that have been known to make fake citations or have hallucinations. Um, so I think those are my two biggest concerns with using ChatGPT or BARD to draft a motion overall. Now those are those are great points. And Jim, for you as the the managing partner of the firm, um, what about implementing ChatGPT, um, you know, associates using it, what, what are the things that kind of keep you awake at night and, and, and give you agita about, about the future, this, this brave new world we're all entering into? So echoing my, my earlier comments, um, I'm actually pretty excited about it. I don't have a lot of agita. I mean, it will be a process okay. and a learning curve about doing it and doing it the right way. And we have our quality assurance committee actually actively looking at you know, we put out some preliminary guidance, but we have them actively looking at, you know, more permanent guidance. 
on, on how to do it. I think Allie identified the two biggest issues, which are confidentiality and accuracy. Um, you know, I, I find it very humorous that a mistake made by a machine is called a hallucination. <laughs> it's, it's already ascribing to it a human characteristic, right? It's not, it used to be called a bug or just a short or a problem. Right now, it's it's given that kind of existential, um, you know, content by calling it a hallucination. Um, obviously, that's really important. But again, it's a difference of degree. Um, there certainly have been, um, you know, in some legal citation systems, a flag that was or wasn't there that got missed. And you always had to, you know, take a little extra step, um, you know, or the like. I think the biggest thing is you've seen publicity around certain law firms that have made substantial investments in going to one of these AI, generative AI providers and have them develop a system that then rather than just going out to the internet to get the information, will just go to their system and get the information there. And the advantage there is, hopefully on your internal system, you have a lot less of the unverified stuff that might be in the internet. So it should reduce hallucinations and hopefully be more accurate. I think one of the things that in, in my management role I think about is when will be the right time for a firm like ours to do something like that? Um, mm -hmm. Because clearly there's a lot of, you know, kinks to be worked out and the like, and the more competition you get, among people doing it, the more likely the products improve and the price comes down. So I don't necessarily see us as wanting to, you know, be at the forefront of that and make that sort of frontline investment. Um, but I do think, as we often do, we let the market kind of figure out what seems to be the right place and and move, you know, toward that in, in an appropriately aggressive way. What that compounds for me is I think it's a reality people are going to use some of these tools. And I'd rather have guidance that allows them to use them safely than to have rules that they won't follow where I say you can't use this at all and you know somebody uses it behind, you know, behind our back. So I want to avoid that. Because frankly, it's that from a litigation perspective, you know, if I was thinking about representing other professionals, right, be they architects or software coders, we a lot of coders are using this, write me code for X, write me code for Y. You know, when we represent them, we wanna make sure that even if they use it, they have the quality assurance check process, they have the review process, they have the alleys of the world who are gonna go and check the site, made sure, they're not made up or made sure the code doesn't have the, the bugs. First, I want to say I love your excitement around the, the future and the use of AI and embracing it. I think that's 100% um, the right approach. I think it's, it's not something we can we can avoid. And we're all going to have to learn to use it. Um, Ali, one thing I was curious uh, to get your take on is um, do you have, because I think lawyers tend to often be a little we're cautious by nature. That's why we're lawyers. We want to evaluate everything. We want to analyze everything before we sort of jump in and start embracing these new technologies. Um, it, it, it's been my experience, and I'm curious to hear from Ali about this. 
that um, my friends in other industries are already kind of using it pretty regularly. And um, Ali, I was wondering if that has been your experience as well, whether you have colleagues or friends who work in different fields who are who are regularly using AI as part of their, uh, you know, part of their job or profession. I haven't heard as many people using it for work-related stuff. I've heard of it more of, you know, just playing around with it, having fun, seeing what they can get out of it, people trying different recipes, um, people looking up what uh, AI can come up about it. Um, so I had a friend who actually ran her name. There's enough information about her work-related. And she ran it just to see what the AI would say about her. Um, and it came up with some pretty detailed information, though some fake information as well about her at the same time. But I would say that you're going to have, as people keep playing with it in their own personal lives to see how they're using it, I think that there's going to be also an additional transition to what you're going to see them using in their work as well. People are going to probably find it easier to research things, write memos, write emails, do those little simple things, even do social media stuff with it as well. I, I completely agree. So one of the areas, and I think it's a particular interest to our firm is because we, we do do you know so much work in the healthcare area and then employment as well, is that I think AI machine learning has uh, the potential to really transform healthcare by analyzing vast amounts of, of real-time data and, uh, and adapting to continuously evolving circumstances. Um, one issue that's come up recently, and Jim, you touched on this. Um, I, I am all for biometric using biometric information um, to avoid passcodes. I'm so tired of, of passwords and having 10 million different you know passwords for all these different things. But that comes with its own set of um, of risks. And Jim, you mentioned. Um, I think you started talking about there's there's been um, I think some you know litigation, especially out in California, some class action litigation with companies that have been. Um, I guess, obtaining biometric information without the consent of the, the consumer. So first, why don't you give us a little explanation of what bio, biometric information is, and then we can talk a little bit about you know, some of the litigation that has grown out of that topic. So biometric information is, as I said, um, information about one's biological makeup and structure. It's usually gathered through systems that, you know, whether it's a retinal scan or an iris scan. It could be fingerprints. It could be um, voice analysis, uh, facial you know, recognition, um, which is all about face structure and bone structure and, and different things. And obviously there are at times um, certain conditions that may um, alter some of those, um, some of those things. Uh, and certainly in, in terms of you know, facial recognition and the like, um, there could be things there, but you know, in these cases, there's usually three issues. One is consent. I mean, one is have somebody collected this information without really telling me that they were collecting it, so they'll call that sort of consent number one. Then is okay, maybe I consented to let you have it, but I didn't really understand you were going to be sharing it with with others. And is there a you know a consent issue there? And if either of those sense isn't present, um, you know, you're likely invading someone's privacy. And depending on what jurisdiction you're in, that could be a statutory claim, that could be a common law claim, or some, you know, combination of, of both of those. And then, you know, the third element of it is the compensation one. Okay, 
you know, I consented to you could have it. Um, I understood you were going to use it with third parties, but I didn't think I was giving it to you for free. Right. <laughs> and so should I be getting something out of this? And again, there are always analogs to that because now we're talking about digital data. But in the past, we've seen issues with regard to actual tissue samples. And, you know, hey, um, you know, somebody took this culture from me or they took this, you know, this tissue sample from me or just as frequently from my loved one, right? It's part of an autopsy or, or something like that. And so we're going to have to look from a litigation perspective at how those cases got litigated and then figure out will those same principles and rules apply as we look at the digital world or is digital different because it's not um, physical in the sense that the tissue sample was. I mean, there's something about the nature of your body and your ability to protect it where you say, okay, you shouldn't have taken anything from me physically because it's an assault, right? If, if it's not consensual, we all learned in law school, it's an assault. That's a lot different than what's essentially a picture, right? not an assault to take somebody's photograph. And so which analogy you, you go with and how you argue it um, is going to really impact on how you deal with, um, you know, with some of these things. And again, AI is maybe not at the forefront of that. It's more about privacy and the collection of data. But the systems that create and retain this stuff and that sort it and that use it for the purposes of diagnosis or or the like uh, they're all ai based and so ai may not be the culprit that violates the privacy but it's the reason or it's the motive it needs that fuel right so you know think of it like okay i didn't steal the car the car was mine but i stole i stole the gas because that car is not going to run unless I pour that information into the AI machine. And adjusting to that, figuring that out is going to be, again, something that's going to be, you know, hopefully first discussed, then maybe negotiated. And hopefully in 98% of the cases, that's where it ends and people reach a resolution. But there's going to be lots of times where people are not going to agree. They're going to fight. And, you know, as a litigator, you know, when I say 98% to 2%, that's okay because those 2% cases are going to be hard fought. And there's a lot of people out there looking at AI. And when you talk about 2% are going to end in dispute, that's going to be a lot of disputes. It's going to be enough for every litigator that's capable of dealing with it to deal with those controversies. What I find so fascinating about what you just said, your overview is um, while the, the context and the circumstances are so different and, and unique to us, you know, the issues really aren't, you know, privacy, consent, should I be paid? You know, these are issues we've all been litigating for, you know, all of our lives. And, and, and um, they're just they're just in a new, new, very unique context. So um, I think the last thing, and, and this is probably something that's near and dear to all of our hearts as litigators, is let's talk about jury trials and how we all envision AI changing um, jury trials in the next like five to 10 years. Um, Ali, uh, have, have you given any thought to like how you know, in a jury trial, you might be able to utilize AI, you know, improving your evidence presentation or something along those lines. I think it's going to be much easier to run data through and to kind of figure out some more detailed information that would have taken hours for us to figure out overall. 
Um, I also think that AI may present some easier ways to present our evidence overall. So I think that those are the two things that I've been looking at. That's great. And Jim, how about you? Um, what do you sort of see coming down the road in the future next time you have a jury trial? How, how, how do you think the use of AI might um, you know, help you improve your presentation to the jury? Well, certainly the, you know, the jury examination and voir dire aspects that you talked about already for jury selection are going to impact on that, particularly if it happens as quickly as you described and the price has come down. Um, so you're going to, rather than save the jury consultant for the really, really big case where the investment makes sense, it may come to a price point where you're doing it more regularly. Um, I totally agree with Ali that what it's going to impact on is the um, presentation of the evidence. Um, AI, generative AI, is going to allow you not only, you know, predictive coding and that let you figure out what the relevant documents are. Generative AI is going to allow you to at least get a starting point at some point to say, what's the best way to present the similarities or discrepancies between X and Y? Um, and particularly if we move into systems that we can designate what the um, field of information is, right? So I don't have to just go out the internet and say, tell me the difference between X and Y. When I can say, tell me the difference between X and Y as illustrated by these 100,000 documents, and they're just going to my system. Again, it's not the end point, but it's going to be a great starting point for the presentation of evidence. I could also definitely foresee some curveball happening during direct or cross-examination, and I'm sitting at my, you know, at council table with my laptop. I, I might just throw something onto ChatGPT as far as what should I ask in cross or in redirect. Again, you have to be sensitive to client-specific information, but it's also a public trial at that point, um, and the testimony is coming out there, so you may have less confidentiality concerns, but. You know, I've used Google during trials just to look stuff up quickly, you know, whether it's a statute, a dictionary definition, or, you know, the location of a particular intersection or, or whatever if it's relevant. Um, I've changed closing slides and statements, you know, that were in my PowerPoint as the other person was presenting their closing so that I was reacting to it. So there's definitely going to be a way during trial where I'm going to be banging something into a generative AI just to get a quick idea about something if you're moving on the fly. It's, you know, look, you know, you talked earlier about when we started. When I started practicing law, I didn't have a computer on my desk. I, you know, I had an AOL email account, but I didn't have a firm email account. I was about a third or fourth year associate. Um, so we're going to adapt. Um, you know, I thought one of the great inventions of all time was Post-its. I mean, when I yeah. started out, they didn't even have post-its. Uh, we're going to find a way to, to use AI, and, and it's not going to be, you know, as, and look, there were times, go back to the beginning of email. Lots of people said you couldn't use email because it, it was the equivalent of just having attorney-client privilege communications on a postcard, so the mailman could always read it. Again, the market overwhelmed that, and we got, you know, encryption. AI is going to find its place. We just need to, you know, find a way to, to get there. Yep, I, I completely agree. And I think, and I and I touched on at the beginning of our um, our discussion, 
you know, the recent experience I had with using it in jury selection process analysis. Um, the other thing is, I think there's still going to be a place for um, the human element, because when we actually, you know, we have these profiles, and like I said, they're fascinating. They did sort of like almost a, um, uh, like word bubbles, you know, using using words that the, the the jurors that they were analyzing had used a lot in their social media and other posts. So you would see like, you know, like um, Italian or, you know, restaurant or things like that. And they did analyses of whether people had, um, you know, whether they like emotional analysis, like whether they were like joyful, angry, disgusted, that sort of thing. And, and I think that's all really, really fascinating, but we are still using consultants, you know, when we actually pick the jury. Now, this is a case that's, that's, a very, very big case, a lot of money is at stake. So it, it, it does, um, uh, you know, it merits um, paying more money to do these sorts of things. But to your point, um, the, the, the price for doing that first take of the jury pool was not, um, it wasn't nothing, but it wasn't what, you know, you might, might expect. And, and you could use it for a case that isn't necessarily a $50 million case, you know, maybe it's a, a couple hundred thousand or a million or something like that. So I think it's gonna, um, it may, you know, kind of, democratize uh, trials and more people are going to be able to use this type of technology. So I think that's, that's a very, very much a, um, a positive. Um, so just sort of, uh, you know, closing the loop on, on all of these things. Um, Jim, wh what do you think the biggest pros and cons to using AI in the legal profession are? The biggest pro is that it's, it can be a great starting point and can quickly generate when we're talking about generative AI, um, something for you to begin working with very, very quickly. Um, the greatest con is the notion that, you know, somehow um, it's finished. And so I think you have to treat all of these, anything created by AI um, is, you know, hopefully the right material, but it's got to be, you know, carved and sculpted and buffed and shined and checked um as you as you go through it and so i think the notion that's gonna save lots of time for attorneys is probably a little overblown it's gonna shift time for lots of attorneys and so there may be um less time needed on the first draft but there's gonna be a lot more time necessarily devoted to the site checking and refinement. And so, look, you know, its ability, as we've already seen with predictive coding as an earlier iteration of AI, is certainly going to save time. Um, but it's going to provide more time for the in depth analysis and require it. Uh, again, I think as it's used presently, if people are just using these kind of publicly available ones where it's searching the whole internet, you're going to spend a lot of time on the refinement and checking as we move towards systems that are looking at our own database or databases you know then it, it may be a you know a time saver to a certain extent but lawyers are always going to face new issues and since ai depends essentially on old writings um it's not great i mean i had that my own experience when i wrote about it when i asked chat gpt to analyze all of the different um, amicus briefs and tell me what they were arguing in a case that was being argued this term, it couldn't give me 
a usable synthesis. When I, to test ChatGPT, I asked it to do the same thing about the uh, Obamacare decisions from 10 years ago and analyze all those things. It gave me a great work product because so yeah. much had already been written about it and done. And because lawyers are always going to be a little bit at the cutting edge, um, there's still going to be a role for us because while they can, while ChatGPT can create arguments and filter things, they're not great at the analogs and analogies yet. You can't say, you know, based on X, tell me what the outcome would be and Y. You know, it's just not as good and you know you're going to have to work with it. So, you know, I see it as a potentially useful tool. And to me, the biggest downside is just because it came out of the computer doesn't make it right. Making sure people actually remain dedicated to their craft using this new tool as they did, you know, when they were using, some, you know, some other tool, um, you know, going all the way back to, you know, a quill pen. I mean, just remain dedicated to your craft. I completely agree. And I think it's going to change some of what we do, but it's going to create new things for us to do. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. But um, but it's not going to it's 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 the, the worry that it's going to replace lawyers, um, is, I, I think, is completely overblown. Um, some tasks, I mean, like we've said before, lawyers aren't necessarily um, doing maybe as much document review, review as they were in the past, but they're still doing it. You know, we still have people checking it. You know, we even in big cases, it's not like we're relying completely on um, the technology. We still have people to, to, to do that. So, um, Al, what? What is your prediction? What do you think is going to happen with the use of AI to screen employment applications? Um, do you think uh, a case can be made that the, the because people train the systems have their own inherent biases, that such programs are always going to be biased and should be banned? Or do you think it's more likely that th this is something that can, can be improved and, and should be embraced by employers? So I think the cat's out of the bag with this that the screening tools are going to continue to be used no matter what we try to do. Um, there was actually a survey done by Society for Human Resource Management in 2022, and it actually showed that of those surveys, 79% of them were using AI tools to do recruitment processes, including screenings. Um, so I think what's going to end up happening is that the tools are going to be audited in a way to try to eliminate some type of bias or adverse impact. And that's partially going to be done through cities like New York City implementing those laws or state laws as well. So I don't think they're going away. I think hopefully they're going to get better. And if not, then I'm going to we're going to be seeing more litigation coming out of this area overall. I, I completely agree. And I um, so so thank you both, Jim and Allie, for joining us today and sharing your insights on this rapidly evolving and incredibly important topic. Um, thank you to our audience for joining us. If you like the information we're sharing today, please subscribe to the show. Speaking of Litigation is available on speakingoflitigation.com, YouTube, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to ACC Chicago's It's All Hearsay. We hope you enjoyed our discussion on AI Takes the Stand of speaking of litigation and ways trial lawyers are focused on the emergence of AI-related disputes in and outside of the courtroom. 
This podcast was brought to you by ACC Chicago and Epstein Becker and Green, one of our gold sponsors. Be sure to tune in next time as we bring you even more content. As always, if you like what you heard today, visit our website at www.acc.com forward slash Chicago to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources for It's All Hearsay. Like, comment, or subscribe to our podcast and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram at ACC Chicago. That's it for this episode, folks. I'm your host, Chantal Kazai. See you next time.